Welcome to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Remember, on April 19th, which is Thursday, tomorrow, you can join me, the Detroit Today team, and other WDET listeners at the Hamlin Pub in Shelby Township for smart conversation about politics, policy, news, and issues that matter most. We're going to be there on uh, Thursday, as I said, from 6 to 8 p.m. We'll talk about transportation and infrastructure. We'll talk about education and this year's race for governor. You are going to lead the conversation on the topics that matter most to you. So for more information, you can head to WDET.org slash events. For decades in this country, there has been a debate about how to deal with young people who commit horrible crimes. Are they adults who should feel the full force of the law or are they young minds that can't be held totally responsible for what they do? In 2012, the U.S. Supreme Court weighed in on this question. It said that mandatory life sentences for young offenders were unconstitutional. That set off years of fighting about how to interpret that ruling and to make sense of it in light of the thousands of people sitting in prison cells for crimes they committed as juveniles. That fighting took on a special intensity right here in Michigan, where we had the highest number of juveniles sentenced to life before the Supreme Court ruled. Our Attorney General, Bill Schuette, has been pretty opposed to making decisions that would make it easy for juvenile lifers to challenge their sentences and get new hearings. Meanwhile, advocates have fought very hard and won releases for several juvenile lifers with the strength of the new ruling. Last week, there was another turn in the saga as a federal judge ruled that the Michigan Department of Corrections can't deny good conduct credits to former juvenile lifers who are now entitled to parole hearings. Now the ball is again in the court of Michigan officials, and the question is whether they will continue their fight to keep the 2012 Supreme Court decision from reaching into the cells of all Michigan inmates who were sentenced to life as juveniles. That's where we want to start the conversation today, and we're going to spend all hour talking about juvenile lifers, how we got to where we are, and where we go from here. And of course, we always want to hear from you. What do you think about the idea of sent- sentencing someone who is under 18 to a life sentence? Uh, that's something that we did very frequently here in the state of Michigan, and now we have all of these cases that need reexamination. Is that the right thing to be doing? Or do you think uh, we shouldn't be sentencing people whose brains are not fully developed uh, to life sentences that way? Also, tell us what you think should be done now in these reexaminations of these cases. How much weight should how long someone has spent in prison matter? How much weight should uh, there be assigned to victims and their rights, their families? Uh, The idea that Sometimes uh, you're talking about loss of life uh, associated with these cases. These are very thorny questions, I think, when you think of them on the individual level as well as the policy level. And, of course, like I said, we want to hear from you. Uh, The number on the phones, as always, is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put your comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. And we'll work you into the conversation. And we want to start the conversation today with a Detroit man who spent 40 
three years in prison in connection with a shooting death that happened when he was 17. David Walton is now 61 years old, and today is the one-year anniversary of his release from prison. David Walton, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Let's start with what brought you to a prison cell uh, when you were 17 years old. What happened and uh, what role did you play in that crime? Well, the late, um, I, um, I was brutally raped at 13. And uh, from that point on, I lost all sense of time. I couldn't figure it out, couldn't get myself together, didn't know how to talk about it because I really didn't know it was a word for the crime that mm-hmm. was committed against me. Against you? Yes. Yeah. And so I just took to the streets, and that's where I was at. You know, I would go home, jump out windows at all the times of night, walk them down the alleys trying to figure it out. What 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 was this all about? And I was 15 when I figured out, when I learned that at uh, 13, I was brutally raped, beaten at a football field. And at that point, my life went downhill. And I just couldn't get it. I just couldn't fix me. I couldn't get it right. And I just started drinking, smoking weed, and and I took on another life that I didn't un- truly understand. And so bring me to the day that the, the, the crime happens that you yeah. were you were sentenced to uh, life for. I was I was um Drinking heavily, smoking weed, and just hanging out in the streets with a few friends, and and just agitated, and and I got into a short argument with a guy, and and then next thing you know, I I put picked up the gun and I fired one shot on the top porch, and unfortunately I hit him, mm-hmm. and he died, and that's how I got to be in the Michigan Department of Corrections. And and do you remember what you felt that day as that as that happened? Sure. Do you remember what oh, yeah. was going through your mind? Oh yeah, I was uh, I was in disarray, and truthfully, truthfully, when I found out that the guy had died, it was worse for me. I, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. I, I I wanted to go to just turn myself in, but I just I was I was confused and and when they arrested me I think that was probably that was probably the best thing because I was I was going downhill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm truly, truly sorry about that night, that day, February twenty first. And it's it's, it's it's still with me today. And and so um, you're sentenced to life in prison at, at age 17. Talk Without, about uh, talk about what your initiation to prison life was like at age 17. Most people in prison are yeah. considerably older yeah. than that. Yeah. Uh, how did that how did that go? Uh, it was a nightmare. I you know I. I wandered around prison trying to trying to fit in, trying to see what it was all about. I heard all the stories in the county jail, and and I was like I say, I had a head full of hair and no hair on my face, very very young, and and 
for a while. It was great. It was, uh, I was getting by. Then mm-hmm. <clears throat> one day I went to uh, uh, an AA meeting, and I happened to just go to the bathroom. And I went to the bathroom. Uh, I seen about three, four, maybe five guys coming to the bathroom. I'm paying many attention because I was using the urinal. And one of them walked up to me and said, what's up? And I turned and run, I turned and he knocked me out cold and I wind up on the floor in the bathroom. And the next thing I know, I had a knife at my neck. He stuck me in my side and and I fought back for a little while and then all over again, it happened again. I was brutally being raped again. Mm-hmm. And so I just shut my eyes and couldn't do anything about it, and I just it happened. Right, and so that's, and and, uh, and so that kind of introduction then yeah that's what it was. to prison. What does yeah. that what does that do when you're 17? What does that do as you grow older into your 20s <laughs> and 30s, uh, and yeah. knowing that yeah this is going to be your life for the yeah. rest of your life. Uh, I used it as a. I use it as a as a tool to to my time. Mm-hmm. I was there for a reason, and so the only way I felt at the time that I can make sense of it that this is what happens when uh, you come into the system and you you I don't know. It's like that. I don't know. I looked at it as, as just being the worst thing in the world can happen to a person. And you try. I tried to still, at that point, try to navigate through it, mm-hmm. but I couldn't. And the worst thing about it was an officer came in the bathroom and seen what was happening. And his words was, i never forget them, hurry up with that BS. And I said, wow. 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 That was deep. Yeah. And so I just went on with my bit feeling real I had a lot of rage at that point hatred in my heart and I got into a lot of trouble I started you know just doing what prisoners do at that point not all prisoners but me I can speak for me I just I was in rage I was just you know I was ready to give up mm-hmm. but this old guy named Drew he came to my cell and he said, David, you still the man you are. Yesterday you are going to be that same man you are today. Don't worry about it. Get past it. That's not who you are. That's not how it's going to be for you. You just keep getting up and doing what you're doing. And I think that's what saved my life because I was getting ready to throw in the towel because I thought that was where it was going to be for me and I just couldn't, wouldn't going to allow myself to be treated that way. And I got back. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. My guest is David Walton. He's a former juvenile <laughs> lifer from the city of Detroit. He served 43 years in prison in connection with a shooting death that he was involved with when he was 17. Today is the one-year anniversary of his release from prison. We are talking about juvenile lifers. We're talking about Michigan's role in the debate about juvenile lifers. This was the state that had more 
juvenile sentenced uh, to life sentences uh, than any other when the Supreme Court ruled in 2012 that automatic life sentences for juveniles is uh, that those sentences were unconstitutional. We're talking with David about his time in prison. We're talking with him about his life now that he is out of prison. And a little later, we are going to talk with uh, advocates uh, on either side of this issue about the juvenile lifer question. Uh, We want to hear from you. What do you think of the idea of people spending the rest of their lives in prison for things they do as juveniles? What do you think about the new science that says uh, brains are not fully formed until the mid-20s for people? Uh, The idea that uh, you might be held responsible for something you do as a child for the rest of your life is incompatible with that science. Uh, At the same time, you have victims. You have victims' families who no doubt believe that a life sentence might be commensurate for the things that they have lost. 313-577-1019 is always the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will work you into the conversation. Uh, David, I want to ask you a, a little more about those early years mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in prison. Uh, do you feel like you were a child and had a childlike view of the world uh, when you went? Uh, and did prison sort of trap you in that childlike view of the world, or did it strip you of the the whole idea of being a child? Um, it strips you of the whole idea of being a child because that's what I was, a child. And I... Uh, You, the you know you're young and you're impressionable and in 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 my early years in prison, it was it was brutal, it was brutal, and it's like they say you either pray or you gonna be preyed upon, and so you, and being young as I was, not knowing anything about life or anything else, couldn't read, couldn't write that good, and and and, and you trying to function in People taking advantage of you, and you know, I come to my house some days. The little little stuff I had, it'd be gone, and this, that, and the other. People walk up to you, tell you, "Yeah, I took it," and this, that, and the other. How, how, how would I was? Uh, they were looking for, see how I would respond to it. Mm-hmm. And most times, I just let it go because it's just things, it's just things. And so, it's you have to, you have to really, really. Be strong within yourself to survive it because every day is going to be a challenge and every day somebody's going to want to challenge you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's how it was with me most days. And I think most of the time I preferred to be in solitary confinement, which I was a bunch, a lot of the time because I would do stuff just to go to solitary confinement to be by myself because to get away from to get away from the the, the madness because that's what it is for especially for young people mm-hmm. because they ought to pray and 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 when you go in there as young as you are that is the way you that is the way it, it is they treat you that way and I thank God that I survived it mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. it's it's brutal. Yeah. 
Uh, let's fast forward yeah. to the day that you find out that um, that you're going to get out of of prison <laughs> after 43 years. Yeah, talk about how how you how you dealt with that. Uh, well, I call I called this dep- deputy warden Scott Nobles, and I asked him, you know, you know, is it for real? And I talked to a lot of other people. Yeah, you know, they, you know, they more or less saying, "Hey, it's real, man. You 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 getting ready to go back out?" You know, <clears throat> I just sat on my bed that night. I just sat on my bed and I was hoping and praying that it was for real because in prison you don't ever believe anything until it happens, and so and so. Uh, I woke up that morning and they called me to go up front. I still didn't believe that I was, <laughs> you know, getting out of prison that yeah. morning. Yeah. And I just I walked up front and and like I say it's a lot of I I knew and got along with a, a lot of staff as well as prisoners and they was wishing me well, hoping hoping that I could make it. And I, uh, and I remember going through that first sliding door. I worked in the controls, and and I used to always see it slide back and forth, slide back and forth, going out, going out. But it was it wasn't me that it wasn't was ever for you. Right? It was never for me. And so I, the day that it was for me, I I walked through the first gate, and I I kind of broke down. And then I got out to the lobby area and the first person I see was Scott Nobles. And the deputy warden. Deputy warden. And he I looked at him, he looked at me, and I seen a few employees. Donna. <laughs> <laughs> it was it was it was it was amazing. Deputy warden, the warden, uh uh it was it was something. And when I seen him, and we got to walking towards the door, and I got into the parking lot, and and I see my attorneys and, and they <laughs> wishing me well, and I say, wow. And the only thing I can think of at that point, y'all, though we stood out there, we took a couple pictures and stuff. And then my brother Will, Willie, he pulled up, and I seen this red truck. I did, and I looked at him, and I had to really look at him because it was almost like, wow. This is my brother too, and wow. And the only thing I wanted to do was just get out the parking lot. Mm-hmm. That's all I wanted to do was get off the ground, because I was looking forward to being back on the street again. We'll talk more about that. freedom. Yeah, freedom. yeah. We'll talk more about that in a in, in a little bit. Yeah. I want to welcome someone else to the conversation here. Deborah Labelle is an Ann Arbor-based attorney, and her firm is handling about a hundred of the juvenile lifer cases here. In Michigan, Deborah, welcome to Detroit today. Pleasure to be here. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we listen to David Walton tell his story about being one of these juvenile lifers, a, a, a couple things sort of jump out at me. Um, one is the kind of life he had before 
the crime uh, that he was sentenced to life for. Uh, the other is the existence for him inside a prison as uh, a juvenile. Uh, I, I want to get a sense from you how common these narratives are among the cases that you're looking at. So um, one of the reasons that, um, at least on one aspect, one of the reasons that there was a federal bipartisan commission that passed the Prison Rape Elimination Act was the um, the deep knowledge of how pervasive the abuse of well, children mm-hmm. in adult prisons was. And they only touched the surface. We know that from the, the findings of that commission that the children who come in or people who come in under the age of 18 into adult prisons are um, eight times more likely to be physically and sexually abused by both adult prisoners and staff than um, adult prisoners. And, mm-hmm. you know, it doesn't take much thought to recognize that that's a reality and that, you know, children under the age of 18 don't belong in prison at all um, in adult prisons. And almost all of the states in this country don't do it anymore. Michigan continues to do it. So I think that uh, the vulnerability and the fact that many people come in with histories of vulnerabilities and trauma, mm-hmm. which um, the Supreme Court recognized in overturning these sentences as cruel and unusual punishment, that we have to look at the child. We have to look at what's happened to the child. We have to look at how we, as a society, and how parents and communities have failed the child. And instead of just dumping all the punishment on the child that we failed, we have to relook at this and say, listen, what are we doing here? These are kids, and they're uniquely capable of growing up and becoming, you know, um, a person who could um, come out and safely and participate in our community, and that's what we should be encouraging. Mm-hmm. Uh, as I said, you're handling uh, about a hundred of these these cases. Uh, catch us up on where we stand in terms of getting parole hearings for these inmates. I, I, I said in the open that we had some news last week about a federal judge saying you've got to count good time credits, uh, good good conduct credits for people who are having these hearings. Where are we overall? With this issue right now? So a couple things. In addition to the work we do as a firm, you know, I run for the ACLU, a project, um, mm-hmm. the Juvenile Life Project. Mm-hmm. And so we have a class of all prisoners in the civil case you mentioned that we're just successful in challenging parts of Michigan statute. Um, but right now where we're at overall in terms of the 363 kids that this um, affected um, in Michigan, is that um, the prosecutors have chosen to put um, over about 236 of the children in what actually the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals just called carceral limbo, meaning that you know it, it's been seven years since the Supreme Court said life without parole mm-hmm. um, for children is cruel and unusual punishment. It's been two years since they've said you have to apply this to um, all children um, retroactively mm-hmm. in Michigan. And yet, and they also said that it's only the 
and they use this word, the very rarest of child who will not be capable of rehabilitation, who may not be capable, who may be irreparably corrupt and for which his sentence is appropriate. Leaving that possibility, and I would note I haven't met that child yet, but okay. (laughs) It's a possibility, but the prosecutors in many of the counties have asked for this life without parole sentence to be imposed again on all of the people in there, all the kids from their counties, and some, the vast majority, totaling about 236. They haven't been resentenced. They have no date to be resentenced. And they're just being held while prosecutors say, we want to pursue a life without parole for them again. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 the bizarre thing is that those who have been resentenced who have gone before judges have had that opportunity. The vast majority of them have gotten the lowest possible sentence or time served. Because once you look, once you really look, you recognize, listen, this person has done everything they can be. They are not the child they were. They took advantage of everything they had. They're rehabilitated. They're David Walton. And then when they've gone to the parole board, all but one, all but one, so I think 40 six now, have been given immediate parole. So when you get the opportunity, you can demonstrate to the parole board who has to determine, are you a possible risk at all? Right. And the parole boards are saying, no, of course not. Wow. Wow. Uh, David uh, Walton, I want to turn back to you Mm -hmm. and, and get you to talk about the last year. Uh, you walked out of prison after 43 years in prison. Uh, um, what what have the last 12 months been like for you? Uh, it's, it started off real slow, scary. And I, uh, won, you know, I think it was probably about maybe even Devin Bell don't know this. I... Uh, I was real close to just going to my parole agent and telling Miss Hunter I'm ready to go back. I can't deal with it. Really? Yeah, it was too fast for me. Things wasn't what I thought. It, I don't know why I thought things was was going to be somewhat the same, and it it wasn't. And and I spent my days just wondering, looking around, and and like I say, I would talk to my brothers and stuff like that and and they'd be talking about their lives and I'd be just sitting there and they not knowing that they talking over my head because I haven't a clue about what they're talking about and I'm just basically I'm just looking at all of them trying to put a face to the way they used to be and, and this that and the other and it was difficult then as time went on I say probably what really, really, really helped me was Operation Able and Ruth's uh, kitchen down on Hancock. I would, I went down for uh, coronary arts and stuff, and and I was so what I was so welcoming. They they were, uh, Mother Ruth. She even to this day, I go in, I get a hug. <laughs> she makes sure I got something to eat. <laughs> uh, her daughter Tammy. Mm-hmm. You got any change in your pocket? You know, <laughs> stuff like that. And, and James taught me a lot about cooking. Mm. And so that's what really, really kept me from going back and kept me on the straight and narrow 
is Operation Able in that kitchen down there. It helped me. It that was that was my that was my lifeline. Mm-hmm. And as time went on, I knew I wanted to do something positive that I haven't heard anybody talk about or uh, have a pathway to helping other people other people within my position. So I started writing more, and I started. I, and I started speaking, and I said I'm going to make it my mission to make sure that bullying, rape, molestation, it's, it's not and it should not happen to kids. And I, want them, I, and I wanted them to know that I'm here as a grown man, knowing what they're feeling, knowing what they're going through. And it's my mission to this day that every chance I get, I'm going to speak about the issue, I don't want the kids to be encouraged that it's people that you can talk to. You don't have to right. be in my position and go off on it on your own and think the world is all against you, because it's not. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's a bunch of beautiful people that is willing to help you, willing to give you a hug, willing to shake your hand, willing to pick you up when you're down. And and so that's what was happening for me. And so I I just go out. And I talk to anybody, everybody. I don't have a red carpet or anything <laughs> that I can have a platform to talk to a great number of people about. But I do, I do speak when I can, and that's been a blessing to me. And yeah. Miss Deborah Bell and her team, <laughs> even if I feel bad, I call her there or whatever the case may be. And that's what you need—a support system, because you're not gonna make it coming out of prison after serving so many years, decades in prison and coming out here and thinking everything is going to be okay because it's not. Right. It's not. It's too hard. Yeah, it's hard. hard. I talked to psychologists and that's another thing they need to do. They need to, when they release you, they should automatically give you somebody to talk to. sort of mental health support. Yes, but you need it. I needed it. I had it. And it was a wonderful thing. And I'm here today because of that and that's what I do. That's what I do. Peter on Twitter says, juvenile life sentences equate violent behavior with, quote, manhood and, quote, adulthood. We are telling troubled young people that being violent is the pathway to manhood. We don't let teens on the National Honor Society vote or buy alcohol because they're still teenagers. Tracy on Twitter says, this issue is bigger than this. The loss of connection and social supports for all are key factors in why our children are suffering. People complain about allowing children to have food a safe place to live and blame all parents without knowing any circumstances. Let's take a quick call here before we break. Tahira in Northwest Detroit, welcome to Detroit Today. Yes, good morning to everyone. Good morning. Uh, Thank you for having this important program, Mr. Henderson. Mr. Walton, I want to apologize to you. Uh, Welcome you home and uh, just and thank you for for overcoming this, uh, Miss Bell. I want to thank you. I want to ask you, Mr. Walton, um, given that this is a system of white supremacy that made you end up into this situation, and many of us that want to help, we can't help because of the same reason. What would you change in uh, the prison system if you had a magic wand? Okay, that's a good question. Great question, Tahira. Thanks very yes. much for the call. Go ahead, Dave. Okay. Uh, first off, I would uh, 
I will upgrade the uh, 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 medical facility. I will get more psychologists in there. I'll get more pro group programs in there to talk about the issues because you will find out that the fast minority, a majority of people that's in prison, they got so many deep, dark secrets and hidden agendas within themselves that they, they, they can't, they, they don't function, and they lash out. And then the first thing people think that they are crazy people, they dogs, and this, that, and the other. People pass judgment before they even get to know who the persons are, and I think that is one of the biggest things that should occur. Mm in prison help and that's talking to with somebody it should be one of the main focus points that should take place in the prison system mm -hmm. because you will find out that it's more underground than it is on the surface and what you see on the surface is not real it's not 90 percent of it's not real it's not yeah. it's not and that's why you in a lot of prisons and as well as ones here in michigan you have so much confusion and stuff that you take away the education you can't get a GED you can't you know if you don't have a year we go for you get out you can't get on computers you can't do that and, you, and I think that is totally totally wrong because if you educate and talk about issues of today and their past you'll soon find out the people people don't want to be in prison People don't want to do wrong. They just tired of hearing no. Yeah. That's yeah. it. They just tired of hearing no. David Walton, former juvenile lifer from Detroit, served 43 years in prison in connection with a shooting death that happened when he was 17. David, congratulations on making it to a year outside. And yeah. Here's to many more. Appreciate it. Right? Yes. I really appreciate your being here. Yeah. Uh, also, Deborah LaBelle, Ann Arbor-based attorney, whose firm is handling about 100 of the juvenile lifer cases here in Michigan. Thank you for being here as well. Thank you. Up next, we're going to talk with the person who oversees the team of assistant prosecuting attorneys, investigators, and victim advocates who are responsible for all of the resentencing of juvenile lifers in Wayne County. Also, don't forget, if you have to miss any of today's show, you don't have to miss out on the conversation. You can go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. Download and subscribe to Detroit Today. Take us with you. Listen when you are ready. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Our next guest oversees the team of assistant prosecuting attorneys, investigators, and victim advocates who are responsible for all of the resentencings of juvenile lifers here in Wayne County. Robert Moran is the chief of the Special Prosecutions Division at the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, and he joins us in studio. Robert, welcome to Detroit today. Uh, well, good morning. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the folks that we're talking about in the state of Michigan are here uh, in in Wayne County. Uh, they're all first degree murderers, uh, convicted uh, of that. But, but talk about how you approach this question, this very, I think, complicated question about people who made horrible mistakes as children and now have been in prison. Uh, how do you, how do you weigh all of the different issues there to make a decision. 
Well, it wasn't easy, um, as, as you might imagine. Um, you know, as prosecutors, it's our job to enforce the law and to uh, present the people, represent the people in the state of, of the state of Michigan in court, and um, uh, argue that people should be held accountable for their actions. And so, when the Supreme Court made the determination that uh, there should be individualized sentences for life of, for juveniles convicted of first degree murder, um, at first there was some resistance um, uh, from a lot of people. But Kim Worthy indicated that we were going to follow the law mm-hmm. and we do the best that we can. And the statute gave us 180 days uh, in which to evaluate 144 cases that we had had um, in Wayne County going back some 40, 45 years where uh, juveniles, offenders had been convicted of first degree murder. And so in a very short time period, we had to make a decision about whether to seek life without parole or allow a sentence of a term of years to be implemented for those individuals. And and you can imagine um, uh, that, that was a difficult process mm-hmm. because we, some of those cases we did, did not even have files for anymore. And so we had to figure out a way um, in which to evaluate those cases and make those determinations. And so what we did was we sat down and uh, prosecutor worthy structured um, a, a teams of investigators to help us determine w- what the facts are in these cases. We had meetings with the uh, State Appellate Defender's Office. We had meetings with the representatives of the Criminal Defense Bar. Um, we had meetings with the court. We had meetings with uh, the Michigan Department of Corrections to try to get as much information uh, as possible. And one of the things that uh, we looked at was we looked at um, what the offender's role was in the uh, the offense itself, um, what the uh, offender's role uh, was um, in, in the role of the crime, uh, what the background was of that individual, what the institutional record was. Mm-hmm. How, how has that person uh, uh, performed while incarcerated? Mm-hmm. We also sought uh, input from the victims, and that was very important from Kim Worthy. And so we had all this information in a very short period of time in which to make a determination. And so we, we were very rushed. And so we made some decisions based on the information that we had at the time. And of the 144 cases, we agreed that 82 of them ought to be resentenced to a term of years, and 62 were seeking life without parole on. Um, I just, I'll just tell you that that was a difficult process to go through. Mm-hmm. What we actually had to do, Stephen, was we actually had to assign each assistant prosecutor in the office a particular case to look at, write a report to a group of us, uh, managers and other individuals in the office. There were nine of us on an executive committee uh, with varying degrees of experience and, and, and um, from juvenile, from appeals, from trial division. And we evaluated those reports and made a recommendation to the prosecutor. And Kim Worthy sat down with us and went through each individual case, reviewed the reports, reviewed the records, and made a determination about whether to seek life or allow for a term of your sentence. It was a very, very uh, truncated experience, and it was very difficult to do in the very limited time period that we had. Um, uh, let's talk about the roles that that some of these offenders have played. One sure. of the things that was true here in Michigan that's not true in every state is you didn't have to be the shooter, for instance, in a murder case to 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 get uh, a a life sentence as a as a juvenile, and that that resulted in a lot of folks uh, more more people going uh, to prison under those sentences than, than other states. What role did that play in your determinations on these, on these resentencing? Well, to be honest with you, when this process started, I was, I was thinking, oh, those cases are going to be easy. Because if, if there's uh, the lookout or the getaway driver or someone who was um, a juvenile and there were adult co-defendants who were the shooters, who were the masterminds, quote-unquote, of, of the particular offense, those cases are going to be easy. We had about three of those. 
Um, because one of the things that we realize in this process, and one of the things that Kim Worthy's been doing for the last 14 years or so as, as the prosecutor, is we're calling those cases. You know, while, while she's been prosecuted, we've had, I think, five juveniles convicted of first-degree murder. Five in the last 14 years 14 or so. 14 years, right. Yeah, so, so we take these cases very serious, and we try to resolve the cases that um, a, a young offender may have not played a significant role in that murder. So we only had a handful of those cases, to be honest, Stephen. And so I was under the expectation that we'd have a lot more of those cases. And so the, the, when we did have one, that was an easy decision for us. Oh, this is, a, this is an easier case because here we have adult co-defendants and this individual juvenile at the time was the lookout. Mm-hmm. Those were easy. But there were just a few of them. Um, I was surprised at the, how few there were. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want to end with a, a big picture question that that I'll say up front. Maybe unfair to ask you as uh, as the person in, in in your role, but I'm but I'm very curious about it. I mean, there's no question that that uh, an aggravator uh, in the determination about who gets a life sentence as a juvenile, who doesn't, uh, is race. Uh, there's no way to look at the number of people who are sitting in prison cells today as adults who were sentenced as juveniles and not see uh, a racial dynamic. Uh, how, do we, how do we address that? How do you as a prosecutor deal with uh, that in the future in a way that, that gets us a different kind of outcome? Well, we see that on both sides of the equation, Stephen. I mean, we see that from our perspective, it's our obligation to take into consideration all the factors uh, that are important to the case in terms of the offender's role, the background, uh, but also the victims as well. And it's our obligation as prosecutors um, to represent the victims. And so um, while the race of the offender uh, is important, I agree with that, so too is the the race of of the victim itself. And uh, that's a part of our process that we consider as well. And and that brings up a very interesting point because um, the victims in this particular um, process um, were were across the spectrum. Uh, We had victims from all over, who are all over the country now, um, who would contact us, and, and initially they were shocked and upset, and they would. Uh, I, I received phone calls every day, it seemed like for a year, of a victim's family calling up crying about the fact that this person who killed their loved one is might get out again. Um, but then after that initial shock and the, uh, that we explained the law, a lot of victims came around, and a lot of victims actually said, you know, I think that uh, this particular defendant has spent enough time in prison. Um, some come to court. Um, some embrace the, the the defendants after they get resentenced, and and as I indicated to you, um, we had um, uh, eighty two of them of the one forty four. We agreed to a term of years. We've already resentenced seventy eight of those, and and thirty of those have already been paroled. And oftentimes the victims are right in the sentencing hearing saying this person deserves a, a second chance, mm-hmm. um, and that's part of the process too. And those are African American victims, just like they're African American defendants. Okay, Robert Moran, Chief of the Special Prosecutions Division at the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office. Thanks very much for joining us here on Detroit Today. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Up next, we're going to talk with Rick Pluta of the Michigan Public Radio Network. He has been covering this issue closely for years. Stay with us on Detroit Today. listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Rick Pluta has been covering the juvenile lifer issue in Lansing for years as the Capitol Bureau Chief of the Michigan Public Radio Network. His most recent story on this topic takes a look at the federal court ruling about Michigan's calculation of good time credits 
for juvenile lifers who might earn parole. He joins us now to talk about where this issue might be headed. Rick, welcome to Detroit Today. Hello, Stephen. So what does this new federal court ruling mean in practical terms uh, in this in this long running argument about uh, about these resentencings? Well, what the judge did was um, take away one aspect of what the uh, state and uh, prosecutors have been using to keep these um, juvenile lifers in prison for um, as long as possible. When the state passed the law to comply with the U.S. Supreme Court decision that struck down automatic life without parole um, for, for juveniles, one of the things that the legislature did was put in something that said, if a juvenile lifer wins is gets um a new sentencing hearing and gets paroled that the state cannot calculate what are called good time credits good behavior credit credits mm-hmm. in um when they can be released um the ACLU challenged that and uh, and won the state is still making a decision on whether or not it's going to uh, appeal that to the 6th circuit US Court of Appeals yeah uh, how does Michigan compare with other states in, in the way that we've dealt with this 2012 Supreme Court ruling? It has been a, a pretty bitter argument here. Are we seeing that happen other places, too? Uh, we are seeing it happen in other places, um, you know, that the whole argument over whether or not the original Supreme Court decision would be applied retroact- retroactively was a uh, argument that played out across a number of states, Michigan included. Um, I'm not super familiar with what's going on in all the other states, but it is my understanding, though, that Michigan has been more aggressive than most in um, trying to contain the effects of the decision that struck down automatic life without parole for juveniles. Yeah. So so how many lifers have been able to get out of prison since the ruling and, and how many do we still have there? You know, I don't know um, the exact number. I know that that there were 367 in total um, as um, at the start of this. Mm-hmm. And um, the state just and, and, and local prosecutors have through various mechanisms um, tried to contain that number as much as possible. You know, for example, one of the things that the state went back to court on is many prosecutors just went back to the um, sentencing judge and asked the judge to automatically resentence the um, lifer to life without parole. The ACLU said no, that, that every, um, every juvenile lifer gets a, a real hearing with at least a real possibility um, at parole. And so they've been uh, fighting that out um, in courtroom after uh, courtroom. Now those cases are uh, at the uh, court of appeals level and... Uh, you know, uh, moving ahead. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk a little about Bill Schuette and his role here. He's the current attorney general, but someone who has said he's going to run for governor this year. He's dug in pretty hard on this issue. What what do you surmise that's about? uh, And will that become an issue in the 2018 gubernatorial campaign? Um, it could become an issue in the in the campaign, although I doubt in the uh, um, in the primary. Um, look, Bill Schuette, um is a very uh, um, he would say pro victim um, attorney general. In many cases, his office has developed relationships with uh, families of murder victims, and uh, they feel like the uh, he feels as if the 
this court decision um, breaks an understanding with with victims and the certainty they had about um, what was going to happen to the people who were convicted of murdering their loved ones. And so that's the position that he's taken. Um, We should it might be worth pointing out that, you know, historically, Michigan was one of the um, pioneering states in the uh, victims' rights movement. And um, there are still a lot of um, politicians around who uh, remember that and take that seriously. Yeah. Uh, finally, where are we headed with this issue next? The the state could appeal this ruling, uh, I understand, and then the advocates uh, obviously will push back against that. Are we, are we close to uh, some sort of final resolution on uh, this issue? I would say it's more we're inching toward a final resolution than we're uh, close to it at this point, just because, you know, we're still, you know, quibbling about uh, legal details. Um, Something else that's worth mentioning that this is not in the um, courtroom track, but we have a Michigan Indigent Defense uh, Commission. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that that commission has recognized is that defending um, juveniles who are accused of serious crimes is its own unique specialty that. Um, representing juveniles is different than representing um, an adult who's accused of something that uh, not only um, do juveniles sometimes make poor life choices, they can also make poor legal choices without um, the correct representation. So that's one of the things that um, our Indigent Defense Commission is looking into, which is how to um, improve legal services for um, juveniles once they're charged. Yeah. Okay, Rick Pluta, State Capitol Bureau Chief of the Michigan Public Radio Network. As always, thanks for joining us on Deep Trade. Always today. glad to do it, Stephen. All right, that's going to do it for us today. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will too. Remember to join us tomorrow at Hamlin Pub in Shelby Township for smart conversations on politics, policy, news, and issues that matter most. We'll be there from 6 to 8 p.m. We'll talk about transportation and infrastructure, education, and this year's race for governor. For more info, you can go to WDET.org slash events. Detroit Today is produced by Laura Weber Davis and Jake Neer. Our program director is Joan Isabella. The technical director and engineer is Matthew Trevethan. And our associate producers are Gus Navarro and Ziad Butch. Detroit Today's theme song was composed by WDET's Sam Bobian. Remember, if you had to miss any of today's program, you don't have to miss out entirely on the conversation. Just go to iTunes or wherever you download podcasts. Download and subscribe to Detroit Today. Take us with you. Listen when you are ready. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's public radio station, a community service of Wayne State University. We'll see you tomorrow.